Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 502, The Search. You may notice that the sound quality, again, is not the best. And for those of you that are new listeners, quite often in our Friday follow-up episodes, you may get this type of sound quality. And the reason for that is Mike and I, oftentimes, as we are this week, are out on assignment. We're not in the studio. And so we have to use our field travel case, which does a good job, but not as good of a job as we get within inside of the studio in our climate-controlled and sound-controlled environment. Typically with our main episodes, when we know we're going to be out of the office, we can record those in advance. But with the Friday follow-ups, we have to wait till we get your feedback in order to do them, which means we have to wait till after the episode drops. So, just as a fair warning, this is what you get as far as sound quality this week. Yeah. Uh, Mike and I are sitting in a small bunk room right now, uh, and there's a group of guys in the other room that hopefully will keep themselves quiet. They'll but, keep it down for us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we want to go ahead and get going with this, uh, because we do have a lot of feedback from listeners this week from this episode, as well as a few more from episode 501, and some people with some questions, I think, for uh, the coming episodes and kind of where we're going with the case. That's right, Bob. Let's do it. All right. Our first question is, what time do these families eat dinner? And they're talking about the families of the missing boys. And I think they're asking because specifically the Moors didn't want Michael home until 8 o'clock. Yeah, this is a good question, and I, I don't necessarily have the answer to it. We do know with the buyers, with Christopher Byers that his family was supposed to go to Shoney's as soon as Ryan was done with court, which they got back from that around quarter after six. So they had plans, and you know, like we said in this week's episode, John Mark Byers was the first to raise the alarm, and it was partially because of that, because Ryan knew that he was supposed to be home, that they were all going out to dinner, and he wasn't there. Now, as far as Stevie Branch goes, we know that he was supposed to be home by five o'clock, so we could assume that Terry was planning on feeding him and Amanda dinner Shortly thereafter, he got back from dropping off Pam at work at five. Michael Moore's a bit of a question mark, and it's a little tricky with them because the Moores uh, do not do interviews. They weren't really involved too much in the documentaries. They just really don't like any involvement with any kind of media, so we're not going to get that answer from them. Uh, but as far as we know, in Dana Moore's statement, she said that she had told Michael not to be home, or she had told Michael that he needed to be home by the time the streetlights came on. 
So that's the best I have as far as to answer that. I know a few people on the fan page or on our main page had commented back on that, that, you know, it's commonplace for them to let the kids play until eight o'clock when it gets dark and then eat a late dinner. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know what their routine was and it's never been addressed as far as I know. Okay. And our next question is, was it a school night the night the boys went missing? Yes, it was. And I, th- I think I did read probably where that comment came from. Somebody was a little confused about it. Yeah, it was. I, th- I think somebody had said they thought it was the last day of school, and it was not. This was May 5th. They still had a good month of school left. It was a Wednesday night, and school was in session the next day uh, because uh, I believe the Hobbs, Terry and Pam, uh, had stated that they went to the school, or it might have even been John Mark Byers and Melissa Byers, that they had went to the school to see if maybe the boys had showed up at school that day. So school was in session that next Thursday. And next we have, where was Michael Moore at 7 p.m.? Chris Wall only saw Stevie and Christopher. So what they're referring to here is that Chris Wall had only seen Stevie and Christopher when they were heading into the woods. This is a good question, and I, I don't know that we can really answer it with any amount of certainty. I have my own theories on this, and when we were going through all of the different uh, witness statements, people who have seen the boys spotted them throughout that evening, uh, Chris Walls, again, seemed like it was a credible statement, a credible sighting, because you know he, he had a timeline to stamp it with. He knew when he got out of night school, he knew what time his dad picked him up, so within a 15-minute window, he was certain he knew the boys, and he stated that he only saw Christopher on the back of Stevie's bike. My particular theory is that since Christopher was on the back of Stevie's bike, that would have slowed Stevie down, where Michael was on his own bike. So I think that, you know, as they're crossing in this neighborhood, it's the street on the west side of it, which is West Macaulay, that, that as you continue north on that street, it dead ends, and that's where the pipe's at. Chris Wall and his dad were coming down Barton into the neighborhood. So they're heading east on Barton with intersects with Macaulay. So they only had a brief window to see the boys, I think, when they were passing by. And I think it's reasonable to hypothesize, at least, that Michael Moore was just ahead of them uh, because he didn't have anybody on the back of his bike. It's also one of the reasons why I personally believe that the boys weren't just goofing around and playing, that they were on a mission. They were running away from something. Uh, and, And if that's the case, it would fit with the fact that they're just pedaling as fast as they can. And again, with the extra person on the back of Stevie's bike, he's going to be going a little bit slower. Michael Moore could have been as little as you know, 50 to 75 feet ahead of him, and Chris Wall might not have seen them. So as far as where Michael Moore was, uh, since we know that he was found with the other two boys in those woods, and we know those two boys, Stevie and Christopher, were headed towards the woods, I think it's reasonable to assume that Michael was just ahead of them. Okay, and also a listener pointed out that it was actually Steve Jones, the juvenile probation officer, who spotted the shoe in the creek. So why did we say that it was Mike Allen that spotted the shoe? That's one of the best questions we had. So this is someone that that knows the case thoroughly and has, has researched it clearly. A little tricky here. So in the documentary West of Memphis, Steve Jones appears, and he tells the story about how he spotted the shoe and he called over Mike Allen and Brian Ridge. Uh, he also says that Mike Allen, while in the water, tripped and fell, and that's when he kicked up Michael Moore's body. Well, the reason we said that it was Mike Allen was because, and that's also one of the reasons why we actually played the trial audio from Mike Allen to make crystal clear that we're not making assumptions here. Mike Allen, under oath, testified that he found the shoe and that he went in the water and that he caught something on his foot and discovered Michael Moore. But there's a whole lot of controversy. The only people that really know the case really in depth 
are aware of with Steve Jones. So Steve Jones is a probation officer. He worked hand-in-hand with Jerry Driver. We're going to get into this stuff in future episodes, but there was a lot of controversy with Jones and Driver later on. There's even some controversy regarding the two of them. Well, excuse me, not the two of them, but uh, just with Steve Jones that night in the fact that in the West Memphis documentary, he talks about that he alone went over the pipe and searched that area of the woods. But then Gary Gitchell, the chief inspector, completely left Steve Jones out of his report. And then the narrative became that Mike Allen is the one that spotted the shoe. Now, so what we're left with is a big, fat question mark. Because the, the question is, was it in fact Steve Jones who found the shoe? And was he in fact over the pipe in those woods searching alone? If that's true... Now we have a couple of problems. Number one, why was he over there? He said in in the documentary, I believe, that he just on his own, he wasn't dispatched. He on his own decided to go help, decided on his own to go check that area of the woods. He found the shoe while alone. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories, as you can imagine, surrounding Steve Jones, a probation officer, because of that. Uh, And then furthermore, it gets even more twisted when Gary Gitchell leaves him out of the report and then another detective testifies under oath that he's the one that spotted the shoot. Now, it's also important to note that, and off the top of my head, I can't remember which, but one of the trials, uh, Brian Ridge does actually mention Steve Jones, something about the fact that he had found the shoot kind of in passing. So there's kind of a conflict in his two different testimonies there. But Steve Jones is a big mystery. Either he was lying and he wasn't there, which doesn't seem to be the case because of the brief mention of him by Brian Ridge. It seems like it's likely that he did in fact find the shoe and we just don't know why the effort, if it was an effort to keep his name out of the narrative. Uh, and it could have been an honest mistake or somebody could be lying. It just, it's, it's very confusing surrounding Steve Jones. So the short answer to this question is why did we say that it was Mike Allen who found the shoe. It's because we went to the trial testimony. We had audio from Mike Allen himself stating it. So that's what we put into the podcast. And all of these things, you know, we're, we're in the very beginning stages of this case. We're just still just telling the story as best we can based on the facts at hand. We haven't even really launched into the public crowdsourced investigation yet. We've still got several weeks before we even get into that and start really getting into the weeds with a lot of these things. But that's, that's the best I can do for you as of right now as far as Steve Jones finding the shoe. Okay, and listeners want to know, who is David Jacoby? Okay, yeah, so we hear David Jacoby's name for the first time in this episode, and that was from Mark Byers when I was interviewing him, when he said that Terry Hobbs pulled up and had David Jacoby in the car, and it's the first time he met him. Well, down the road, quite a bit probably, when we get into this, David Jacoby's name will become more significant as far as what we know right now, and that, and this episode with the search, all we need to know right now is that David Jacoby was Terry Hobbs' friend. Jacoby lived right around the corner on 17th Street, so the Hobbs lived at 1601 South Macaulay. So they're right there at the intersection of 16th and Macaulay. The next block over is 17th Street. If you go north on 17th, about a block, there's David Jacoby's house. He lives with his wife, Bobby Jean, and their daughter, I believe. And in any case, they were friends, and at some point, Terry had gone over there and picked up David to have him help search. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding that that we'll get into later also. But that's why you might have heard, I think, people picked up on maybe the tone in John Mark Byers' voice when he mentioned that that's the first time he met David Jacoby. But all we need to know right now is David Jacoby is Terry Hopp's friend. All right, and people are questioning your comments about the job the cops did in finding the boys. And one listener writes to us, 
Isn't it standard procedure for police to wait 24 hours to begin a search for a missing child? So uh, that idea mostly comes from TV. Uh, whenever you watch any crime show, they always say, well, wait 24 hours and then we'll start a search for them. I think that that at one time was an old school way of thinking. That's how the cops would do it. But it's, it's a terrible procedure and it's old school and no one does this anymore. And even back in 93, the police should have known better. And the reason for that is some statistics that I'm going to give you here. Now, I want to point out these statistics vary depending on who's reporting on them. The FBI will tell you, guys like Jim Clemente will tell you that within 24 hours, 99% of children that are abducted, 99% of them will be found dead or they'll be killed within the first 24 hours. So that's on the high end. On the lower end, I have these statistics, which is of children that are abducted within the first hour. 46% of them are killed. Within the first four hours, 75% of them are killed. And within the first 24 hours, 88% of them are killed. So whether you go on the high end or the low end, uh, you can look at different types of statistics and different ways of analyzing this data. But what we know is if you wait 24 hours, on the low end, there's an 88% chance the kids are going to be dead before you ever start looking. So the idea of waiting 24 hours to search is just absolutely asinine. I mean, you have about half. I've heard as high as 50%, and this study here that I'm reading is 46%. About half of kids that are abducted are killed within the first hour. So, number one, if you intervene within that first hour and look at this particular case, we know that we see Chris Wall sees the boys alive at 7 o'clock. John Mark Byers and Melissa and Ryan are talking to a cop at 7 o'clock. And he says, wait another hour and then call. And it appears that they were killed during that hour, which would fit this statistics. They would fall into that. About half end up dying within that first hour period. So to say wait for 24 hours is just asinine. And, and if that was their procedure back then, maybe they're following procedure. I get it. But I would very much disagree with it. And I would still say they made a terrible mistake by doing it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No All right. A lot of people were surprised by John Mark Byers. I was actually surprised when we met John after watching him on Paradise Lost. Yeah. So here's the thing this is a kind of a complicated situation. When we originally went to go find John Mark Byers and talk to him, you know, for those of you that haven't seen the documentaries of Paradise Lost, John is a very charismatic guy in those videos, I would say. And that's not the right word. He's just, I guess I'll just say it. I don't think Mark would be offended by this. He was, he seemed crazy in those documentaries. I mean, there's, there's a scene where him and Todd Moore are using their pistols and shooting pumpkins and calling out names of the three who were ultimately convicted of this. 
Uh, at one point, he's he's burning a bonfire down in the creek. He's just acting crazy throughout most of the documentary. Well, when I met Mark, he's actually a pretty normal guy. He's actually a really, really intelligent guy. Very organized. He has continued to study the case for 24 years. As a spoiler alert, Mark does not believe that the three who were convicted were the ones who killed his son. And he's just determined. He's never, ever given up on finding the actual killer. Uh, even to this day, he's still doing a lot of work to try to figure this thing out. So what John told us about the documentaries, he first told us, you know, he's, he put it on him. He said it was on me that he was, you know, he was acting a fool during the filming of those. But Mark, th this is what Mark told me, and these are Mark's words, are that really the people at HBO created that. He, personally, after what he told me, it doesn't seem like much of a documentary to me. Like they were trying to create entertainment. And he said that, you know, at the time he was a grieving father his world had just been flipped upside down. He was devastated. They're trying to even figure out how to pay for the funeral expenses for their eight-year-old son. And then in walks HBO and they say, here, here's a check for a few thousand dollars for the rights to do this documentary. And then he said they would, you know, and John said that at the time he, he would drink a little bit and smoke a little pot. And the documentarians knew that and said they would show up to his house to shoot a scene and would literally either give him money to go buy marijuana or bring him marijuana and a bottle of whiskey and get him all drunked up and then create these ideas and these scenes that they wanted him to do. And that included the scene with the pumpkins and that included the scene with the bonfire down at the crime scene. You know, I can remember he told us, Mike, he said, where the hell do you think the gasoline and all the wood came from for that scene? Yeah. It's like they set that up and then got him drunk and got him high and then took him down there and, you know, would... He said they would just egg him on to, to, to make, they, they really tried to, is from what he told us, they really tried to make him into the character that you saw on the shows. What I can tell you from personal experience, either John Mark Byers has changed a lot over the last 24 years, which is possible, or he's, he's telling us the truth, and that's, and that's what happened. What I can tell you is he's an extremely kind man. Oh, nicest guy in the world. Yes, and, and very sharp. Um, easy to easy to have a conversation with. He he knows his stuff. He knows the case back and forth. He is adamant that the real killer of his son has not been caught, and he encouraged us. He was he was excited to hear that we were reopening the investigation because he just he values anyone who is going to poke and prod around more with this case, try to dig up new evidence and find the person that that killed his son. Uh, but th but that's why you heard such a huge difference. People that know him from the documentaries is because. That wasn't his real personality. He was being, uh, according to him, he was really being egged on to act that way to make him a more dynamic character for Paradise Lost. And again, I want to point out, too, that, that Mark takes the onus for that. You know, he says, it was my fault. I, I acted that way. They didn't force feed me anything. They just really facilitated the situation so that he could get into the state of mind where he was willing to do these ridiculous things. Yeah. All right, and listeners want to know, was the area where the bodies were found searched the night before? That's a good question. I think we had touched on that in, in this week's episode in 502. Yeah. We don't know. I mean, Terry Hobbs says that he did. Nobody else seems to remember Terry Hobbs doing that. And John Mark Byers, like I said, he was around the area, and he uh, drove around with Ryan around to the Blue Beacon, which borders those woods on the west side. And he actually had Ryan, at 13 years old, get in the car and drive the car slowly forward, shining the light into the woods 
while he walked the perimeter of the woods screaming and hollering for Chris. And he, you know, he said, at least at that point, there was no one in the woods. There was no flashlights. There was nobody calling out. Right. And I think that, you know, we heard Regina Meek say that the mosquitoes were terrible. And and I'm telling you, that's a weird, I mean, of course, you're by a bottle, body of water. The mosquitoes are going to be bad. But, you know, Mike, we were there. How many times have we been down to that bayou? Oh, we've been down there 20 times. Yeah, or and- more. Yeah, and uh, we definitely experienced the mosquitoes ourselves, too. But oddly, not till after dark. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say. We would be out there working in, in the hot sun all day long. We, in, in the rain, we had all, all different weather con- conditions there. And all day long, not a single mosquito bite. It's odd for being a body of water like that. Now, it's a flowing body of water, so that helps, but nothing. And then, man, that sun goes down. You know, When we were uh, doing some of our experiments down there at the water, we had to go retrieve cameras after dark. I mean, the minute the sun goes down, they're just swarming. I mean, you're, you're, they're in your mouth, they're up your nose, they're in your ear, they're everywhere. And so I would expect if anybody was out there that time of night, they would just be covered in welts, completely covered in welts. Absolutely. Um, and that's another point. I don't know if you have that on your list, but a couple, a couple people have kind of jumped the gun when we went over the crime scene and asked, were there any mosquito bites on the boys' bodies? And the answer is no. And, and we're going to get into all this stuff, but just real quickly, people have started to speculate with theories that, you know, it was a dump site. You know, if, there was, if the boys were killed there, they'd be covered in mosquito bites. And, and we'll get into all that, but as a short answer, I don't think that's necessarily true at all. From my own experience, if they were killed and put in the water before it got dark, I wouldn't expect to find mosquito bites on them. You know, maybe one or two here or there, but sure. not like if they were put in there after dark. I think that what it tells me is that the entire crime occurred in that hour between 7 and 8. Because by 8 o'clock, the mosquitoes would have been swarming and they would have been covered with mosquito bites. But as far as to answer the question, I I can't say definitively one way or another. At this point, it's just who are you going to believe? Some people say that they were there in the woods that night. Other people say no one was in the woods that night. So we just we honestly just really don't know at this point. While we're on the topic of people going across the pipe, when Ryan, Chris's brother, was searching and heard something, why did he run away? It seems like if he was actually looking for his brother and heard a noise that he might go towards it. Yeah, I, I think that... It just depends on what that noise sounded like and and how tall the weeds were. There's a lot of factors here. And also remember, Ryan's 13 years old. It's pitch dark. He's over there in an area that there's some reports that say he has been over in those woods. I think he actually said at one point that he's been over there in that part of the woods. But it's like I said, it's 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 kind of a scary place over there. And the way I took it to read is that there was like rustling in the bushes like an animal coming at them. But even if it was someone over there at 13 years old, that's also going to scare the heck out of you and you're going to run away. But whatever it was, it scared all of them. I think there was three people over there and they all went running across the pipe. But just the way that I pictured it, you're probably looking at, you know, I don't know, knee high weeds and you hear something rustling and moving through the weeds coming at you. You assume it's an animal and they probably just got out of there. They were scared. All right. And while we're on the topic of Mark and Ryan searching that night, why didn't John Mark Byers investigate the gunshot? Well, if you were listening closely, you heard Mark Byer say that it was a car backfire. So when you really dig into it, Ryan and his friends came back and said, we heard gunshots. But Mark, and mind you, he was with a a police officer, with Officer Moore. They had both heard it too, and they both thought it was a backfire, a car backfiring. So I think they didn't investigate it because they didn't think it was a gunshot. And to be honest, they were probably right. I mean, Mark is... Uh, a hunter and a gun enthusiast. He knows guns. Most people that are around guns not only can tell you if that was a gunshot or a car backfire, but can tell you what caliber and type of gun that made the sound. And so you've got two guys in the officer who's carrying a gun, 
and Mark Myers that both heard it and both thought it was a car backfire. Now, a couple of 13-year-olds were already scared. They don't know what's going on, assumed it was a gunshot, but I assume that's why. It's because they didn't think that it actually was a gunshot. All right, another question. If Michael wasn't due home until 8 o'clock that night, why did Dana send Donna look for him at 6 o'clock? That's a good question, too, because Dawn clearly states that, that Michael was supposed to be home when the streetlights came on. But yeah, so she sees all three of them heading north towards the woods at 6 o'clock and sends his sister Dawn after them. But then again, remember, she doesn't contact police at all. When she sees the police over at Mark's house, that's when she becomes concerned. And so she walks across the street, uh, realizing she knows that Chris is with Michael. It's past dark. Michael's not home. And the police are at Christopher's house. So, of course, she's concerned at this point. So, as far as her sending Dawn, I don't know. I'm hoping to find out more about that. But, you know, it could have been something as simple as, you know, they said to go play and you can stay out till dark. And then she had some dinner ready and sees him and sent Dawn to go say, hey, come back and eat some dinner. Or just to check on him and make sure that, who knows? Uh, you know, because that's, it, it, they didn't necessarily have, you know, a big sit-down dinner. You know, we have meals like that sometimes, especially in the summertime when all the kids are running around and different activities where we kind of have... Uh, what my son Quentin likes to call fend for yourself night, which is, <laughs> you know, we got to, you know, pick something out of the, you know, we're cooking, you know, Becky will cook something, you know, uh, a meal that they won't eat for her and I, you know, with, with all kinds of vegetables and onions in it. And uh, the kids just, as they get hungry, you know, grab a pizza out of the freezer, we'll throw that in or some macaroni and cheese or whatever you want because everybody is so busy. So it could have been something like that, but I, I don't know. But we do know those two things are true, that she said that he wasn't due home until dark. And that she did send Dawn after him. So that's all we really know. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Also, there's been some discussion on the fan page. People who are really studying the case are worried that you're going to have some bias because you've already stated that you believe the West Memphis Three are innocent. Yeah. And so this is, you know, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to get to this at this point. I'm trying to go from the very beginning and go step by step through the investigation as it happened without any preconceived uh, biases. But... You know, just based on the trailer and things like that, people have caught me saying that we're looking for justice for the West Memphis Three, the convicted three, as well as the three boys. And I, I, as I say many times, most importantly, who we're calling the Forgotten West Memphis Three, which is Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. But that's led to some conversation on the fan page, and people have asked, just point blank asked me, do I think the three who are ultimately convicted of this are innocent? And and I, I don't mean to be giving any spoilers, but I, th I think everybody's pretty much got the idea now, even people that don't know the case that this is a case where someone was convicted and then released. 18 years after they were convicted, the three took an Alford plea. They were offered by the prosecutor, but they pled guilty in exchange for time served, and they walked out of prison 18 years after the fact. So that happened, and we'll get into all those details. We're going to dig deeply into this, I promise. But uh, I was asked point blank, do I think they're innocent? And is it going to sway the reporting? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, I will say I do believe the three are innocent. Now, that's not because of some preconceived bias or anything like that. We took on this case, you know, I, I had seen the documentaries, I had read some books and read some of the case files and and thought, you know, I wonder, there's so much controversy and anybody that's been on in the Facebook page or Twitter feed or anything knows there are people who are diehard, the three are guilty, there are people that are diehard, the three are innocent, 
and they like to fight online. So I wanted to see, you know, is there something to this? So I really started, I, I, we, we, uh, me, you, and Shane took our investigation back to the very beginning, forgot everything about that, and we went right through the crime scene documents, the autopsies, the everything, the witness interviews, and and to try, and this is a process we go through with every case we do. It's a screening process. I mean, there's, we get hundreds of letters every month from people who want us to take their cases, and we have to have a method of screening them. And, and so a lot of times people hear new cases we talk about and they're saying, oh, well, you're already convinced they're innocent, so why does it matter? Well, I'm not convinced anyone is innocent, but I believe very strongly there is a high likelihood they're innocent or we wouldn't take the case. I'm not going to waste everyone's time. You know, the show's not about entertainment. It's about actually making something happen. It's about, about changing people's lives and, and hopefully someday correcting the criminal justice system or being a part of that process. So if I think somebody was convicted, and they were guilty, and then why would I do a podcast on it and do this live, real-time crowdsource investigation just to prove that, yep, they were guilty? You know, in that case, justice would have already been served, and, and we wouldn't, but our, our services, I guess you'd say, wouldn't be necessary. So we put this case through the screening process just like any other, and the reason that I took it, and it is, the focus is on the Forgotten Three, on the victims, because I believe, yes, they did not receive justice. At this point, I do not believe that the three who were convicted were the three that committed this murder. And that's not based on some preconceived bias. It's due to months and months of research and actually doing, you know, and there's people that say, well, I've been studying this case for years and I know, that, well, okay, I mean, that's fine. You, you can hold that opinion and, and I have an opinion about it. Um, I've actually many times, probably more than a lot of those people, we've been to the scene. We've oh, yeah. spoken to the people involved. We've just we've done a lot in a in a short period of time, and and I would say that to me, it seems very unlikely, yeah, extremely unlikely that these three uh, were the ones that actually committed the crime. Now that being said, the other piece of that question is: is this going to be a, a biased reporting? And the answer is no. I'm going to when we get into the part where we start going through the different suspects, we are going to break down piece by piece the case that was built against these three. Without any bias, I'm going to report it to you as exactly as it stands, facts as they are, let the chips fall where they may, let you make your own decisions, and I'm sure there's going to be people that insist they're guilty, and there's going to be people that insist they're innocent. All I ask is for everybody, the same as I'm doing, is to keep an open mind and be open to new information. The, the, the biggest problem, the reason this case and many like it are so controversial, is somewhere along the lines, people make up their mind about innocence or guilt, and they're just completely unwilling to waver from that. You know, there's nothing you can tell me that, well, you can, it doesn't, and I've, I've done it. Well, what about this, this, and this? Oh, that's, that's bullshit. You know, it's, you know, for XYZ reason, I will tell you the boys were convicted on completely circumstantial evidence. So you can at least know that, that now you, you can take that for what it's worth. But anyway, I'm, I'm rambling on a little bit, but yes. So I believe that the three are innocent. I do. But I'm going to still present the case as I always do every season, every case. I will present the facts to you and let you make a decision. And if you and, and I'm completely oh, if somebody brings me new information, I just had a new witness come up a couple of days ago through social media. I uh, was put in contact with somebody we'll be hearing from hopefully at some point that is a witness from the time who believes the three are guilty. And and so we're going to be going through that. So I'm I, I'm not I, I'm not censoring anything that comes through. I'm willing to hear any evidence that's out there, but I'm not going to 
just spew rhetoric. You're going to hear facts and you're going to see case documents and you're going to hear real audio and real interviews. That's what's going to happen here moving forward. Well, perfect. I think that's all we've got for today. Yep, I think that's good. Uh, make sure you tune in to episode 503 and two days on Sunday. Episode 503 is all about the discovery of the bodies. We're going to break down the crime scene. We're going to break down their injuries. As a heads up, a trigger warning, this episode's a rough one. There, We're going to talk about some things that are very, very, very unpleasant. Uh, I, feel that it's, I, I, I feel that it's necessary to do it uh, so that we can all get a picture of the case and start working on this thing. Uh, but be aware of that. Um, and there's a, also a discretionary warning at the beginning of the episode. Uh, but until Sunday, you guys have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Amanda Meyer created our Friday follow-up logo. I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Stephanie McConnell, and Britta Bliss. Also thank you to Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross, who are continuing to work on getting our website up to date. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail with a question, comment, or a tip on the case to our tip line at 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.